0: Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. This morning I want you to go to Matthew chapter number six. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do like buy one, get one this morning. Once you get to Matthew 6, put a piece of paper or a pen or dog ear the page or something and go over to Luke 11. So we'll be in Matthew 6 and Luke 11 this morning. And we're continuing this series, Practicing the Practices, which is trying to get at, at, at the heart of discipleship. It's trying to help us understand how do we apprentice under Jesus well? And how do we take full advantage of the good life that Jesus really does have on offer? And at the core is this idea that we need Jesus' words and his ways. We need to absorb his truth and practice his practices. And over October and November, we've been laying out some of these core practices from the life and teaching of Jesus that his followers need to implement into their own life. So Uh, This morning we're going to talk about the the idea of the practice of prayer, and I wanted to start just by something that happened in in our week, uh, our life this week. Excuse me, my wife and I (coughs) went on a date on Thursday. We got a babysitter for the kids. We went out to dinner. And then we went to a concert Thursday night. It was a really unusual concert. And I saw on social media, a couple of you all actually went to it as well on different nights. But there was a a candlelight concert, and there were four different strings from the Pittsburgh Symphony that were at this little venue in candlelight. Uh, playing different scores from movies. They were all Hans Zimmer scores that he had written for movies over the years. And there were two violins and one cello and one viola and just beautiful, just beautiful music. And they're playing all these different things that Hans has written for, and you may not know Hans Zimmer or the movies that he's written for, but you would know certainly some of the movies. They're playing from Lion King and from Gladiator and from Pirates of the Caribbean and all these things that he's composed for. But there was one movie that they played two different scores from, and the movie was Interstellar. And the music was beautiful, but I didn't know the, the movie or the music really. And because they played two from it, I thought to myself, I want to watch that movie. I'm going, to, I'm going to figure out some time this week. So I did. I, I found some time on Friday and, and watched the movie, and it was, it was pretty good. But the core of the movie was this idea that our planet was eroding, and we need to go find a new planet. So they sent space travelers out to all these different planets to explore, and they're trying to get messages back from, like, across the universe. They're trying to receive these messages of what are these other places like, and is there life, and is there, you know, potential we could live on Mars or somewhere. And they're trying to to figure all this stuff out. And And the whole, like, drama of the movie centered on people trying to communicate across the heavens to each other, trying to send and receive messages, right? And all this time and all this effort, all this money was spent into trying to send and receive messages across the heavens. And I thought to myself, I'm preaching on prayer this week, And here is a science fiction about trying to send and receive across the universe or across the heavens, but we have in supernatural reality as God's people, the ability to not just communicate with, but commune with an almighty God of heaven, right? And you don't need a satellite dish and you don't need lots of money and you don't even need a lot of time, but the ability to send and receive, the ability to communicate With the God of the universe is at our disposal when it comes to prayer. And there's so much you could say on prayer. There's so much that Jesus said on prayer. But I want to do my best in one sermon to distill it down to just a few core ideas and give you what is maybe the bottom shelf of prayer. And I want to try to help us understand when it comes to prayer how would we start a prayer? How would we end a prayer? And then what would we put in the middle? And if we can get some of these really rudimentary concepts down, I think that our prayer lives would be, would be helped immensely. So let us begin, <coughs> excuse me, with the idea of how do we start our prayers. Matthew 6 is where you should be. And this is the most famous teaching of Jesus on prayer, bar none. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew 6. He says, after this manner or like this, or let this serve as a template or a model for you. Pray like this. And here's how Jesus starts his prayer. Our Father. And of course, we get, if you grew up in the Catholic tradition, you are getting what is known as the Our Father. If you grew up in a Protestant tradition, you're getting what is known as the model prayer or the Lord's Prayer. But he begins to unfold this prayer. But it starts with two very simple words Our Father. This is the address on the envelope, so to speak. And this idea of starting a prayer with our Father, you may not realize it, but in Jesus' day was pretty revolutionary. If you read the Old Testament and the prayers contained therein, or even if you read rabbinic literature from Jesus' day or prior, as many theologians have done, you would find that there are no prayers that begin with our Father. There there are moments where God is called the Father or a Father, but you won't find any personal addresses or communion with God that starts from this context of relationship, our Father. And people have long noted that what Jesus was doing was breaking from tradition in a drastic way And was giving to his ideas a new concept that when we pray and commune with God, we want it to be out of the context of relationship. We want to talk to him as though he is our father. And the disciples of Jesus found this not just to be revolutionary, but they found it to be extraordinary, And you would find Paul, or you would find John, making these superlative, exclamatory remarks about the fact that we are the sons and daughters of God, and God is our Father. So for example, in John, John would say, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the sons of God. Like what kind of love is this? that God has given to us, that we would be his sons and his daughters. Like this is is mind-bending, that God would love us in this way and he would be our father. And the point is that there is a tenderness. There is an emotional disposition from God to you. And that is one of a father to his dear children. If I asked you, how does God feel about you? The right answer would not be if you are his child. The answer is not, well, he's just constantly angry with me and he really probably puts up with me and I annoy him quite a bit. No, the answer is he is my father and there is a tenderness and there is a compassion and his heart glows with affection for me. He's my father. And Jesus goes to great lengths, to great lengths, to try to press this idea home to his disciples. But think about it. We would understand what it's like to have a relationship with a father. Not all of you had a good relationship with your father. I understand that, and we'll we'll mention that in in greater detail in a minute. But I understand what it's like to be a father. I have kids. Like when I walk in the door, home from work, my children do not walk up to me and say, greetings, Pastor Likens. I'm so glad you're here. Listen, I know you're a busy man. Could we maybe bend your ear for a few moments later on this evening? Do you think we could schedule some time in? They don't do that. Why? Because they're my children, right? When I walk in the door, they run up, they're excited. Not always, but most of the time, they hug my leg, they, they crawl on me, we wrestle, we talk, right? They make requests of me, like they pepper me with requests often, and they don't hesitate a bit. They're asking, can we uh, go to J&S for pizza? Can we get ice cream? Can we go to a Steelers game? Can we stay up late? Can we, can we, can we? I'm their dad, and they're my kids, so there's this relationship where they're not, they're not hesitant or gun-shy to ask of me, I can't always say yes to those requests, but they ask, and they ask, and the, and the environment and the relationship is one of warmth, one of understanding, not, not of tiptoeing around, walking on eggshells. No, they're very sure-footed with me because we're—it's a father and his children, Right? and and what Jesus is communicating is when you enter into prayer you want it to be from the context of relationship and this is what he really just pushes home so hard in Luke 11 so if you're in Luke 11 look at it with me now mind you we are parachuting into the middle of Luke and there's already been a lot on prayer in Luke so in Luke chapter number 5 Jesus withdrew to lonely places to pray and in Luke 6 Jesus spends the night praying and in Luke chapter 9, Jesus takes the guys apart to a mountain to pray. And then in Luke chapter number 11, verse number 1, Jesus is praying, and the disciples stop, and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. It's, it's, I don't know if this is true or, or not, but it's almost as if they see Jesus' public ministry, and they see him being so effective with people, and they intuit that, that public ministry is somehow deeply co- connected to this private communion that he has with his father. Like Jesus is drawing from a well that they want to drink from. That they want to pray like he prays, right? And they, they say, teach us to pray. Now, that, that's a great prayer to pray for us, right? Even on a day like today, we're talking about prayer. Lord, teach me to pray. Help me understand. It, it implies that I don't know everything. There's more to discover, there's more to learn, and that would be a healthy prayer right now in your own heart. As a matter of fact, why don't we just stop? Take 20 seconds. I'm gonna pray, and you pray. If you can mean it with sincerity, pray to him. Lord, teach me to pray. Okay, ready? God, would you teach us to pray today? Ask him. Lord, teach me to pray. Now that was very simple, right? That was a couple seconds, but that's the disciples heart. We want to know, help us, teach us. So what does Jesus say? He says a lot, but look in verse number five. He said unto them, which of you shall have a friend and shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine is in his journey to come to me. And I have nothing to set before him. So first century, different culture, hospitality was a bigger deal then than it is now. It's kind of mediocre now, but it was huge then. And if you had someone coming, you wanted to host them, even if it was a last-minute addition to your house. So this is, this is super late. I didn't know they were coming. I'm not prepared, but I want to host them. So they go to their friend. It's midnight. Would you give me some, some bread? Verse 7, he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not. Leave me alone. Bug off. It's min- Don't you know what time it is? Go to bed, right? Why? Why? The door is shut. My children are with me in bed, which would have been very typical of the first century. I cannot rise and give to you. I already shut the house down. I already set simply safe. Everyone's sleeping. Bug off. Verse eight, but I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he's his friend, and because of his importunity, so the friend keeps asking, come on, man, like, you know, it's me, it's Bob. Come on, I need some bread. He will rise and he'll give him as many as he needs. Look, let's say you got a friend and they're like a little bit lazy and a little bit selfish and a little bit stubborn and they don't want to help you. If you ask them and if you ask them again, they're your friend. They're going to give to you, right? They're going to help you out because they're your friend. And the idea is if if your human friend will do this for you at midnight, how much more would a heavenly father want to help you? How much more would he want to give to you? And he presses it. If you think I'm exaggerating, this is what he says. Verse nine, I say unto you, ask, it shall be given. This is all in the context of teach us to pray. Ask, seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, he that seeketh findeth. To him that knocketh, it shall be opened. So my kids, if they ask me for something over and over and over again, they're not going to get a yes every time, but the more they ask, the more they'll get It's just how it works. If they ask me for ice cream every day, they won't get ice cream every day, but they'll get it more often than if they didn't ask for ice cream every day. Keep asking. Look at verse number 11. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that's his father. So now we're going from friends to father's son, which is what we're interested in because we're praying our father. If he asks bread of his father, (coughs) will his father give him a stone? Will he give him some rocks and say, chew on this? If he asks a fish, will he give him a serpent? Or if you ask an egg, which apparently was a first thing or a thing in the first century, I've never asked my earthly father for an egg, but apparently that's what they wanted. Will he give them a, a scorpion? We would say it as if your kids ask you for fruit snacks, are you going to give them cyanide pills? No, it's an obvious no. So here's what he says If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? If you read Matthew's account of this, it says, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those that ask him? And here's what Jesus says. Your human fathers, whether they were good or bad, they're imperfect. Now, if you had a a just terrible, like deadbeat, dropout dad as a human father, I understand that can be a a huge like father wound and that can be very difficult to even have a relationship with God in the context of father, but I would encourage you. You can filter your view of God through your human relationship with your father or you can flip that and you can see your human father through how, how God is and you may come to the conclusion that he was very less than. But the Bible will tell us that that's where God specializes, right? That God, according to the psalmist, is a father to the fatherless. Or as the psalmist would say, when my mother and my father have forsaken me, then the Lord shall take me up. Like, God specializes in being for us what we never had or never got from our human parents when they fall short. But Jesus recognizes, if, whether you would say good, bad, or bad, dad, you're evil. <laughs> you're imperfect. And you customarily, the way it normally works, is you as an imperfect parent want to bless your children with good gifts. And if you as an imperfect parent want to do that, how much more would your perfect heavenly father want to bless you with good gifts? Now, there's a lot that that means, but at the very least it means that we are coming to God out of the context of relationship. Because if you don't believe that God's heart glows with affection towards you, you're not gonna come. If you think he's annoyed by you, why are you gonna put him off? If you think that he doesn't want anything to do with you, you're never gonna come. But if you are his child, you are his dear child, and you need to view prayer through that lens, you need to start your prayer with our Father from the context of relationship. But then how do we end our prayers? Well, if you go back to Matthew number 6, We find it started with our our Father, and the prayer ends with this phrase, Matthew 6, 13, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now you tell me, how do we customarily end our prayers? What is the phrase, That if you've heard a Christian pray a hundred times, at least 90 of them, you've heard the same phrase to end the prayer. And you've probably, if you pray a hundred times, probably end yours 90 times this way. What is the phrase that we use to end our prayers? You tell me. There you go. You're a smart crowd. In Jesus name, amen. now that's different than what I just read. It is. The ending of his prayer was yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We end with, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, it is not wrong to end your prayer with, in Jesus' name, amen. Let me just say that up front. But it is not required, nor even prescribed, ever, from Jesus, from his prayers, or if you read the prayers of his apostles that are written for us in Colossians and Philippians and Ephesians, we have their prayers. None of them end with, in Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) They, They don't do that. So why have we adopted that as our habit. Well, more to come on that in a minute. But the way the Bible prescribes you would end your prayer would be from the context of the glory of God. I would say it this way. It's with an understanding as you put a bow on your prayer that you are not the most important person in the room. That your desires or your glory or whatever you're after is secondary And you are playing second fiddle to the glory of God and that you're okay with that as his child. That doesn't mean God doesn't want to hear your requests and you can bring whatever you want to him, but it does mean that his glory trumps whatever you think would be best. And you want to exit your prayer with that understanding. And it's actually the glory of God that is coupled with praying in Jesus' name, if you actually read Jesus' teaching, that we oftentimes miss. We emphasize, let's pray in Jesus' name, but we miss the glory portion. So if you look at John 14, this is where we get the idea that we should pray in the name of Jesus, which is a very biblical idea. John 14, verse number 13, "'Whatsoever you ask in my name, that will I do.'" but we skip this phrase, that the father may be glorified in the son. Next phrase, if you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. The point here is that you want the glory of God to be your aim in prayer and you want the name of Jesus to be your claim in prayer. Now, praying in Jesus' name is something that we not only should do, we must do when it comes to prayer. We can choose to verbalize that as an ending on our prayer. We can choose to verbalize that at the intro of our prayer. I know that that would like shatter some of your all's like uh, habits. But if you wanted to say, our father, I come to you today in Jesus name. Like you could start, but you don't even have to verbalize it. It's far more of of a heart disposition then it is something that you articulate out loud, although you can't articulate it out loud. But it is very possible for you or a child to just say in a perfunctory way, in Jesus' name, amen, but have no idea what you're saying or why you're saying it and not truly pray in Jesus' name. That's very possible. It's also very possible to never articulate it, but to actually pray in Jesus' name. So the question is, what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? It means that you have a deep understanding as you're praying that the only way this is possible and the only way you have any credit at all to stand before God or to be called his son is because of Jesus. Then, like Jesus is the reason we have right standing with God. And that we are name dropping him, right? We are like, hey you don't know me at all. And there's nothing that I can like ask because Mark's super good, but I'm coming in the name of Jesus, right? It further means that when you're representing someone's name, their interest would be at heart. So if I was charged with a crime this week and I was on trial next week, I would hire a defense attorney. I would not try to represent myself. I don't know enough. I would hire a defense attorney. But that attorney would represent my name and my interests. They would have to do and say things that had my best interests in mind, not their own, right? In the same way, when you're claiming or representing the name of Jesus, it's his interests that get put at the front. And this is very important because if you think that it's not the glory of God that is most important, or it's not the name of Jesus and his interests come first, then you'll take the phrase, well, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. And you'll try to make God your little genie. And you're not going to pray very long if you do that, because you're going to realize very quickly, God doesn't answer all your prayers. So you're going to be very disappointed, right? Like, I thought this was about my request and I thought if I claimed Jesus' name that I would get it and I asked you for a raise and I didn't get one. So, you know, what's wrong? Is prayer broken? No, prayer's not broken. It's just that God's not your genie. And if you do this long enough, you'll, you'll eventually just stop because you're like, well, some get answered and some don't and I, I don't know what's going on here. And, and the point is that God put a safety valve on prayer but it is only going to fire properly if the safety is off. And to take the safety off, the glory of God has to come first and you have to claim the name of Jesus. I brought with me this morning something my dad gave me this last month. I went home for my buddy's funeral and my dad gave to me three old uh, BB guns that were mine and my brother's. This one does not work. It, uh, it won't cock anymore, although the, the hammer will come back but it still has, it has a safety switch right here. Right here, right? It, I won't point it at you, even though it's just a BB gun and it doesn't work, and there are no BBs, I still won't point it at you, okay? <clears throat> but there's a safety switch right here. Now, this is not that powerful. It's powerful enough to hurt. First-hand testimony. Um, we, we shot each other as brothers a few times. But even though it's not that powerful, there's still a little safety right here to ensure that you're not pulling that trigger willy-nilly, right? that you intend to, right? And red dead. Once, once you see the red, you're good to go. There is a safety switch on prayer that is the name of Jesus and the glory of God. That it's not just like, well, okay, God's my father. He'll give me whatever I want. I mean, he wants to give good gifts to me. I'll claim the name of Jesus and boom, you know, there it is. Mm, that's not, that's, that wouldn't be healthy for you. Like we should know enough to know I oftentimes want things that are really bad for me. And then I look back five years later and was like, I didn't realize it in the moment, but like, I'm glad I didn't get that. Ever been there? Mm -hmm. This is like the story of our life. You as a parent, tell your little kids, like, no, don't eat the rocks, right? No, don't play in the street. Don't touch the stove. It's hot. Like three wishes, they're dead. You know, they're going to eat rocks and get killed in the street and burn their hands. And then you grow up a little bit and now you're 16. And boy, you really know what you need when you're 16, don't you? Some of you know what it's like to get the things you thought you needed when you were 16 and you still regret so many of them because now you're more addicted to that than you ever thought and you wish you wouldn't have started or it's one of your biggest regrets that you gave into that temptation and and it still in many ways haunts you to this day, something you thought you needed, you wanted, and you got it, and it was bad for you, right? But we're not six. We're not 16. Now we're 36. Now we're 56. Now we know. Come on. We we have to be more honest than that. It stands to reason that if you really didn't know when you were six— and you really didn't know when you were 16, and you really didn't know when you were 26, then now that you're 56, you still don't really know. And you're going to look back 20 years from now and be like, I was an idiot. And here's the point. When you exit prayer with the idea of God, this is about your glory, and this is in the name of Jesus, which means that it's the only reason I'm standing with you. And I want his interest to, to trump everything else. I'm representing his name then all of a sudden you have a safety switch. All of a sudden you've bookended prayer out of relationship, but in the right way. And you understand it properly. And now you can fill in the middle with all kinds of stuff. And this is where the fun starts to take place, honestly. And I know that many people don't think of prayer as fun, but prayer can be very fun. So what do you put in the middle? There, I think are two, the two biggest enemies to prayer are busy and boring. I don't have time for busy this morning. But boring, I, I would like to debunk a little bit. There's so much you can put in the middle. If you understand, I'm starting with our father and I'm ending the bow on this with the glory of God in the name of Jesus. Then in the middle, there's so much you can put in there. So think sandwich, forgive a really poor analogy, but it'll work, I think. If I say, make me a sandwich, I wouldn't say that first of all, that comes across real bossy, Right? If you said, would you like a sandwich? And I said, yes. I don't know what sandwich we're talking about, but I know this. It starts with bread and it ends with bread. I know that much, right? I know the beginning and the end. I got that down. But what's in the middle? Anybody's ball game, especially when you're in Pittsburgh. Y'all put fries in your sandwiches. I say, y'all, because I'm not part of this yet. Like, I've, I've tried it and I'm not in. You can do bacon, lettuce, tomato, do a BLT. You can do some roast beef. Any roast beef fans on your, on your sandwiches? You can do some turkey. Turkeys, we're all the weirdos. No, I'm just kidding. Um, can I get a witness on the ham? Ham, yes, hallelujah. Put some cheese on there. Put some condiments. Ham and mustard is a good combination. If if you're nasty, you put mayonnaise on there. That's fine for you, not for me, but for you, right? You put whatever you want in the middle of there. Potato chips, French fries, whatever. When it comes to, like, okay, I got the beginning, our father, relationship, his heart glows with affection. I got the end, it's the glory of God that's most important. But in the middle, what do I put? Well, biblically, lots of stuff. And if you want to emphasize one of these more than the other, you can. You can switch it up. But here are some things you would put in the middle. You would put, first of all, perhaps thanksgiving and awe and praise. Psalms talks about entering into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. This is the part of prayer that's not about you. It's just about pouring out your affection on God and telling him that, man, (coughs) excuse me, I love you. I care about you. Thank you for being merciful. Thank you for being gracious. Thank you for offering salvation. You're so wise, You're so good. You're so strong. You're like awe and thanksgiving. If you want a resource on this, I would recommend Timothy Keller's book just called Prayer. But the subtitle is experiencing awe and intimacy with God. And there's lots of books on prayer. But this is one in particular that emphasizes that aspect of prayer better than most is awe of God. You could also put requests. So going back to Matthew 6, I told you we're going to keep going back and forth here. Matthew 6, our Father... Ending, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. In the middle, what's in between those? A bunch of requests. Now those requests take different shapes and forms and sizes, certainly. But everything in the middle there is a request. Hallowed be your name. God, sanctify your name. Thy kingdom come. Lord, bring on the kingdom. I'm ready for it. Forgive us our debts. Give us our daily bread. All of it is a bunch of petitions. So it's very fair to put in there, God, here's, what's, here's what I'm struggling with. Here's what I think I need. I don't know best, but I mean, would you give this? Would you help here? Be specific, be concrete. I love how one author put it. They said that we enter into prayer and we spend most of our time worrying in God's general direction. I'm like, that's so true sometimes. Sometimes. Like all we did was let our mind wander on the things that are plaguing us and kind of push it in God's direction, but we never really made a request. Ask him, concrete. Lord, you know my daughter is struggling right now. She's not spiritually where she needs to be. Would you bring her back to you? God, this month, would you bring her back? Would you turn her heart? Be specific. Make your request known. You would also put inside of their confession Confession certainly is a type of request, but you see that inside of the model prayer, you also know, according to John, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Once again, specificity is helpful. Don't say, God, it's been a month. I've, I've probably messed up. Let me roll it all into a big ball and just say, would you forgive me of it? No, God, I lost my temper in ways I did not want to, I did not mean to. But man, I did. And I don't want to be that guy. Would you forgive me of that? That's not right. That's not okay for my relationships. It's not okay for those that are on the receiving end of me breathing fire at them. Would you forgive me of that? Be specific. Confess your sins. Listening would be an idea where you're not asking anything or you're not even saying anything. You're just stopping and saying, God, search me. Talk to me. If this is unusual or not customary for you, I would recommend start small. Maybe take 30 seconds, 60 seconds, and just listen to what God wants to say to you. Certainly, you can pair this with Bible reading, and you can pray. And then, God, speak to me through your word as, as I read it today. Those, those would be things to do. There's many more we could put in here. You could put process in your emotions. The psalmist does that so often. So many. But this, these are some components that can fill the middle of those prayers. But you're communing with God. So how do we make this specific? I want to give you just a few very practical ideas and, and we'll be done. Practically, what you want to do with this information is, first of all, create a daily prayer ry- rhythm. So this is not a part of your daily prayer rhythm or rhythm at all, then start small, probably. You're far better off to spend five minutes a day in prayer than you are to spend an hour once a month. Create a habit loop around this. So whatever works for you. If you want to put on some worship music in the background, do that. If you want to light a candle, and then light a candle. If you want to make your cup of coffee and your cup of tea and sip on it while you pray, then do that. If you want to sit in your favorite spot by the window in your armchair, whatever works for you to create that rhythm and that spot that is just kind of normal for you of like, hey, I get up, I make my coffee, I sit in that prayer or that, that chair, I take a few minutes, try to create a rhythm around it. When you're making a rhythm, lean into your personality. Don't work against it, work with it. So if your personality is more active, I'm this way, then, and you're fidgety, you may not want to sit in the chair with your cup of coffee. You may want to walk while you pray. You may want to like knit and keep your hands busy while you pray. If you feel closer to God in nature, then you may want to be out in the woods while you pray or in a field somewhere. Like there's there's not a, a right or a wrong when it comes to those things. Just know your own personality and how you work. If you I would recommend mornings probably for most people, but if morning isn't your thing and you truly know I I just, I'm not a morning person. Maybe your lunch break, maybe before you go to bed at night, work with your personality, not against it to create a rhythm. I would also, if you're, there's a few reasons you would, you would do this, but it may be a good recommendation for some to use copy and paste prayers. This was like a revolutionary idea for me uh, probably six or seven years ago. But there are many prayers that are already created that you can take and just, Use the lingo as your own. So the Lord's Prayer is an example of that. There is a danger of vain repetition. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 6, right before he gives the Lord's Prayer. And the irony of that is impeccable. That he's like, don't use vain repetition. And then it became the Our Father that you chant four times as, you know, confession for your sin or something. It's repetition isn't bad. Vain repetition is bad. So you can repeat the Lord's prayer. You can use it as a template, whether you're praying the words exactly or whether you're taking the phrases and elaborating on them piece by piece. Uh, The Psalms would provide many templates. And even if a Psalm isn't a prayer, you can like hack the Psalm and just make it a prayer. So Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, right? Talks about God. Just turn it into a prayer. God, thank you for being my shepherd. Because you're my shepherd, I know I'm not going to want or lack for anything. Thank you for leading me. Like you can take those words and just twist them just slightly, edit them to where they become a prayer. You can not just use the Psalms, but you can use Scripture. There's lots of prayers, and you can just Google it, like prayers of the Bible, and you can pray them verbatim. Use songs. I enjoyed our song service this morning because we sang uh, at least two songs that were prayers to God, right? We opened with Open the eyes of my heart, Lord, I want to see you. That is a prayer to God that you are singing. You can pray that. We sing as the deer. The the majority of that song is a prayer of, uh, what are the lyrics I wrote down? I want you more than gold or silver, only you can satisfy. Like that is a prayer to God that you can take those lyrics and use them as your own. You could also use formal liturgy. I had zero exposure to this in my upbringing, but in the last probably three years or so have had a moderate bit of exposure to this. And if, if you want to use the Book of Common Prayer, uh, you can, many people have for a long time. The one that I would recommend is Be Thou My Vision by Jonathan Gibson, which is liturgy. It's prayers of confession and prayers of thanksgiving day by day that you can take and you can use it as your own. So you don't have to do this. The only thing I'm trying to say is, There may be situations in life where it would be very fitting or helpful for you to find someone else's words and use them as your own. You say, when would I want to do that? Well, if you're learning to pray, this would be a good one. In the same way that a kindergartner traces the letters before they make the letters on their own, you may want to trace some prayers before you make the prayers on your own. You could use this if you're traveling and you don't have the same habit cues that you normally do. You could use this if you are exhausted or perhaps you're unwell, physically or mentally. Finding someone else's prayers in those moments would be helpful. Perhaps you just need words. And like, I just don't know how to articulate these things. You can find someone else who has articulated it and take them and pray them. Number four, you may want to develop a a handful of prayer cards. So this is one of the oldest, like, uh, life hacks in the book when it comes to prayer, but it's very simple. You get some three by five cards, just a four by six cards. And you write at the top of it, your spouse's name or children or uh, extended family or friends or people I'm praying would know Jesus, whatever it is. And you just put some bullet points on there and you take them. And when you come to like making requests, you take them and you read and you pray them. And you don't have to pray everyone every day. You can choose this one's Monday and this one's Tuesday and this one's Wednesday. Or you can choose to pray for half of them one day and half of them the next. You can do however you want. There's no like right or wrong to that. But it can serve as a really helpful guide. And when a prayer is answered, you can mark that down and make a little note on it. You may find, this is the last one I'll give, although I could give a lot, uh, that keeping a prayer journal is, is healthier for you. I know a handful of people that process conversations and their emotions better in written form than they do in verbal form. I am not one of those people, but some have found it helpful to journal their prayers and to write them as a letter to God. And if that's a little bit more time-consuming normally, but that may be a very productive way for you to do this. You can do it however you want. As long as you're ensuring that I'm, I'm coming to this with our Father... And I'm mindful that his glory is the most important. I'm not the most important person in the room here. And then you fill it with all those things. And that could be five minutes. That could be 50 minutes. That could be Jesus taking a little bit of time to pray. That could be Jesus praying all night. But use that as communion in relationship with God. Now, here's what I need to do in the last few moments we have. I'd like to connect this to communion because we're observing communion today. It's interesting what happens in the life of Jesus. You see all through the gospels, he prays, he prays, he prays, he prays. But you almost never see what he prayed. It's like the, the words elude us. Other than him giving us kind of a template in Matthew six, it's like, what are you praying? What are you saying? And then you get to the 24 hours before the cross up to the cross. And it says, if the page turns, and now you don't just get that Jesus prayed, you get to be a fly on the wall and you get to hear what Jesus prays. All of a sudden, you get to put a listening ear to the prayer life of the Lord Jesus himself. And you get to read John 17, this whole chapter on glory and holy and unity for, for God's people. But there in the garden before Jesus is arrested, the most probably pronounced prayer that comes out of it is the one that many of you would know. Where Jesus prays, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but but thy will be done. Right? This prayer of I know, I know what is next up in the cross. And that is so heavy. Is there a different way? I submit to your will, but is there a different way? And he's arrested and he's falsely tried and he's mocked and he's beaten and he's taken to the cross. And there you get to hear the prayers of Jesus, right? You get to hear him pray, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You get to hear him pray, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know what it's like to have a relationship that is long-lasting and close, be fractured perhaps by death or something like that. But the idea that there was a love exchange from all eternity between the Father and the Son that gets broken, it's something that we, we can't really put words around how profound and painful that would be. And of course, there's the end where Jesus prays, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. But it's really remarkable to me that you get to know the words in the 24 hours surrounding the cross, right? And you get to see that this was hard, this was agonizing, this was excruciating, but that he was willing to do it. He was willing to forgive us. He was willing to to run his course and finish the task to redeem us, to die on a cross, And it's with those prayers in mind and the seriousness of the cross that we come into these moments where we think about the body and the blood of Jesus that was broken for us and shed for us so that we might be called sons and daughters.